Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm really excited to have with us Shelby Austin, who is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Arterior AI, which is a fantastic digital documentation company powered by artificial intelligence. Shelby has amazing experience across professional services and artificial intelligence. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with her today. Shelby, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Lex. My pleasure. So tell us, how did you get a start in your career? What were the early experiences that formed your view on how value gets created and you know where you wanted to spend time? Well, I suppose I started my career off as a lawyer. And so the major notion was that if you put your head down and work very hard, that good things would come. And so I suppose my early sense of, of value creation was around effort and really just like grinding it out. And that was really the, the prevailing way that we thought as lawyers that still actually impacts me to this day, but it was really based around if you put your head down and do great work, great things will follow. What kind of law did you study and practice out of school? I worked for a large-scale corporate firm primarily focused around securities litigation. Gotcha. Were there any lessons about human nature or about industry that you picked up in that experience? First of all, as it turns out, I don't think I was ever meant to be in litigation (laughs) because I'm much more comfortable when I'm building things or when I'm creating things than when I'm sort of trying to find the wedge to take something in a different direction. But also in addition... At both of the law firms I worked at, actually, they somehow both ended up calling me Gidget because I'm like a pretty cheerful person. And so I I was very different. Most lawyers are very skeptical and very task-driven. And I was always kind of creative and uh, really, really sort of cheerful. And so one of the early lessons was that I probably didn't belong there, is the truth. What did it lead you to? If it wasn't the law and securities litigation, what kind of doors were next? What was interesting is that, first of all, what it did teach me was how to learn a new subject matter all the time. So every few weeks, we would come across a new case, and I would learn the ins and outs of you know, artisanal mining in Africa, or you know, semiconductor instruments you know, elsewhere in the world. Like, I, I mean, it was just you, you would learn whole new industries and whole new tasks all the time. And I knew I really loved that. And I knew I really loved learning. But what I did was when I looked around the firm, in particular on large-scale corporate deals, I would see that we would print out thousands of documents around the firm. And I remember looking around a huge boardroom and seeing that we had printed for, for a purpose 30,000 documents. And we were going through and flipping through them, reading them and individually highlighting and tabbing them. 
And I'd had enough of a software background that I like knew that this was bananas of a way to approach the task. And as a result, Lex, it was like in that boardroom, in that moment, as I'm like having my 12th Diet Coke of the day, (laughs) going through these tabs in a mindless way where I decided to start my first company focused around these sort of broad scale principles and data management and and sort of initial early concepts of, I'm going to say AI, but looking back, we would never have used that term at the time to, to sort of get into the documentation technology space as an early precursor to this company. And so I, I then went and started my, my first company. What does documentation mean in this context? So in, in that context, it, it meant physical paper documents that had to be organized and in a digital format. And so most of the time, you were really talking about, you know, what would be known as a piece of paper, I guess, <laughs> or what is still known as that. Now, more and more, we think of documentation as a looser concept in the sense that it's really about how do we get the data organized in the formats we require? How do we get unstructured data organized in formats we require to do a whole bunch of tasks? But at that stage, we were really just talking about large-scale public due diligence effectively for M&A purposes or for antitrust reviews. That was the genesis of where my entrepreneurialism started. And it's still, I suppose documentation is so interesting, despite seeming so boring, because it's both technically hugely challenging and never stops moving. Like the idea of how language technology has evolved in the past, you know, 15 years is unreal. But then also functionally, it's everywhere. Like in financial services, it's certainly everywhere, but it's everywhere in the world. Like every bit of sort of major industry runs on this, on a core base sort of level of where we need documentation to, to, to get through our jobs. And so, yes, that's, that's where, that's where documentation comes from for me. In kind of the early context, it was, you're working on, you know, some particular deal or case and for people to get up to speed on things, they would have to print out all of the discovery or all of the diligence and consume it kind of physically with their eyes and face and brain. And you're thinking about how to change that workflow or automate or digitize that workflow pretty early on. In your first company, what was that solution that you came up with or how did you think about incrementally making that process better? Yeah, so in that first company... We were using a combination of people and technology. The technology, unfortunately, wasn't up to the task on its own the way it would be more up to the task today. And so I had this idea, in particular at the time, we were looking at legal documentation, which is totally different than what we look at today. But we were looking at legal documentation, and the idea was to combine underserved markets of talent, which in the case of law was there were so many women who had left the practice of law to go on to other things that I thought I could use them in non-traditional sort of, you know, flexible work schedules to assist with this problem. So it was the combination of people, the combination of established softwares out there in the market, and a whole bunch of things we developed, uh, you know, everything from, I mean, Excel macros to, you know, a little bit more, you know, sentiment analysis type stuff to try and directionally get where we had to get to in terms of sort of the broad organization of, you know, of these large scale sets of documents, just to give you a sense of scope and and size in one case, which actually wasn't a case, it was a deal, but in any event, we reviewed 
in excess of 20 million corporate documents for, for, for a particular exercise. And so, I mean, that is, that is an unimaginable data set. And it's unimaginable to think that historically people would have read that like page by page. And so really we were able to drive, I mean, tremendous value. Like we were able to lower the overall deal costs or overall litigation costs or overall antitrust costs by like 50, 60, 70%. And so we kind of went from zero to hero very, very, very quickly as a result of, of no one really ever having used common sense principles <laughs> to try and attack these problems. And with sort of the advent of the cloud and large scale data being available and email just growing like weeds and, you know, everything that was going on in the world at that time, which was, you know, 2010, 2011, et cetera, you know, all of a sudden there was so much data and, and so few ways of solving it that it was like, it, you know, just getting your arms around the size of the problem was really quite fascinating. Who were the clients of that business and how did the transaction with Deloitte happen? Sure. So the clients of that business were large-scale enterprise. I would say from very early on in my career, I've just, I've been fascinated by large-scale enterprises. I think that a lot of folks in the world, particularly entrepreneurs, find the corporate world to be frustrating. It's very slow and low and, you know, it's, it's uh, hard to wrangle all the stakeholders. But for me, I, I always found a sort of sense of, of beauty with it. And the way the transaction with Deloitte came up is, is we worked with these very, very, very large clients. And I had managed to, in very short succession, win a number of very large deals. And I had about four or 500 people working in my office and I just run out of space and needed to add kind of a whole bunch more people, like hundreds, along with all of the technical extensions. Cause again, I was sort of half people, half technology. And I needed to find basically in less than a week, probably space to do that. And I just couldn't sign leases fast enough, let alone furnish the spaces. And so I was looking for temporary space and I had decided that I could effectively share some of the work with someone like Deloitte in order to secure space. That was my big idea, <laughs> which ended up working. And so Deloitte lent my company, you know, a massive floor of massive building to be able to complete this work, including, you know, a whole bunch of facilities and computers and a whole bunch of things that, that they ended up being phenomenal. And that was kind of the genesis of the transaction is that we would occasionally work together on these sorts of projects. And eventually it just made sense to join forces in a more official way. So as you joined Deloitte, I guess, what kinds of opportunities opened to you? And what was your earliest introduction there to the AI themes that the firm was working on? Before they had acquired my company, we were already using... Again, it was very early, quote unquote, AI, but we did call it AI in our work, trying to review all these documents. And so what was interesting is that because legal documentation was just an early use case for AI, because of the way the language was in legal documents, it was, it was particularly apt to train for these kinds of, of early AI models. I had a, quite a lot of experience using really as an applied AI user going into the transaction. 
And when I got to Deloitte, I was running, you know, my company still, which was like a, a smallish division for them. And then very quickly, they asked me to take on innovation as well. And then they asked me to take on analytics. And then eventually they asked me to take on AI. And for me, having come from law where management is not really a separate discipline, it's like, if you're really good and put your head down and work really hard, as we've discussed, then you may eventually become the head of your, you know, group or whatever. And that's as far as management goes. And so I'd never really seen an archetype, except in my own company, where I'd just always been the boss of being asked to lead groups that you might not have been the most technically qualified in the field to lead. And so it was actually quite an interesting journey because as they asked me to take on progressively bigger and bigger roles in their organization, I had major imposter syndrome, first of all, just because all of a sudden I was leading teams of scientists and was not a scientist myself. It took me years to become actually really uh, understand what a strength that was in time. But, but certainly at the time, I had no idea. And so I would say that it was almost, I mean, probably within six to 12 months that they started asking me to take on other roles. And with each new role, as it went well, they would just sort of ask me to take on more and more. And so it was when I first took on leading the strategic analytics and modeling team, which was primarily science-based team. That was sort of my first major foray into trying to lead beyond just developers and, and you know, really trying to lead large-scale science teams to, to try and figure out how to build and grow a PL and and go to market with, with a whole bunch of different wares in that space. What kind of demand did you see from the various enterprises that Deloitte interfaced with for artificial intelligence? And it would also help in this time frame, right, 2017 to 2020, like what did artificial intelligence mean in the first place? How are these companies consuming it? Yeah, I would say this. So first of all, artificial intelligence, people fuss about the definition a ton. I mean, at Deloitte, we always had a really live debate about what, how should we define AI? Should it be defined as machine learning, deep learning? What were the techniques that were included? And we effectively decided that the appropriate definition was mimicking tasks that humans used to do using various techniques. And the reason we kept it broad was because, especially in large-scale enterprise, the, the demand was nascent when we started, you know we had the largest analytics team as a precursor with some AI. So we had the largest analytics team and then eventually, you know, a large AI team, but it, it was quite foreign and people weren't really sure how to even consume the services at that time. And so there was a lot of market generation there, a teaching people that AI isn't a, a one thing, <laughs> you know, you can't AI something and that really using AI models is really just another tool in your toolbox to answer age-old questions about how do we increase revenue, how do we minimize cost, how do we diffuse risk, etc. And that AI may or may not be yet another tool in your toolbox with which to approach that problem. And so I would say we built the team and created the demand as we went, actually enormously successfully. But but we're doing things, like just to give you a sense, like how do we upskill the general knowledge of the country <laughs> to ensure that there's enough demand? We wrote reports, we spoke with regulators, we spoke with the government, you know, we, we, we basically were really at a macro level trying to increase general demand and then at an enterprise level trying to 
increased specific demand, but really people just weren't sure everyone was interested. And while the hype is way, way higher now, at the time, it seemed like we were far behind on the hype cycle, even though looking back, we were so far ahead. But at the time, it really seemed like we were racing to catch up and everyone wanted AI, but no one really knew how to use it. And so some of the lessons we learned were, number one, how do you package AI in an appropriate way? Number two, how do you actually get organizations ready to think about data and think about org structure and org design, you know, like how do we ready enterprises for what we were going to deliver? And then finally, how do we really ensure that we're driving value as we go? And that was probably the biggest lesson, which is there are so many science projects for science projects right now, even now still in the world. People will tell me they're judged on the number of POCs they roll out or they're judged on the number of sort of pilots they do. And and none of that makes any sense to me. We are now at the point where AI is certainly good enough that we should be running large swaths of our business on it. And so I suppose from, you know, whatever, 2016, 2015 and going forward, it's really, we've seen like a total change in the tide in terms of how people are, are thinking about the prevalence of AI within their business. Let's move towards Arteria and kind of the, the insight that you had that led to the creation of the current company. I realized at some stage that I still wasn't done with the documentation world. Again, it is just an incredibly rich problem and natural language processing, which has now evolved well beyond that into multimodal and a whole bunch of new types of, of techniques being used. But like at the time, it was just captivating for me. Every week there was an advance in what we could do. And so having already understood the most practical use of documentation and AI, I realized I just had to recommit back to the problem space to really follow the advancements in the technology because things that would have taken us, you know, half people or 70% of people in 2009, 2010 could now be like 70%, 80%, 90% technology now. And so, as I said, that the tide had turned completely. And so I just, I needed to, at the most visceral level, follow those updates along and just continue to create within that space. The major shifts happened when I realized, number one, I was particularly compelled by how financial services institutions operate. The need was insanely prevalent within, you know, banks all over the world in particular. There was documentation in every onboarding process, in every trade process, in every ops process, in every reconciliation process. And what was so interesting is that while I had come from this world of legal documentation, I was no longer really interested in that. I wanted to work for the front office and I wanted to work on problems that were more at the center of the organization writ large. And so as a result, we decided to create the Arteria IP with a particular focus on solving financial services documentation challenges writ large. Everything in every nook and cranny regardless of whether or not it was a contract or not, any document of any kind, we wanted to be able to read those documents, write those documents, move them around. And what was particularly interesting is that it wasn't just the models that compelled me. Obviously, they're, they're really interesting and have fascinated me for a long time. But 
I have always just been endlessly practical in trying to say, how does this change the life of the trader? How does this change the life of the credit person? How does this change the life of, of someone in ops? And really focused around the most user-centric design in terms of we cannot consider a problem to be solved if it's just solved at a theoretical level. And really, it's the application of this problem set and how we solve it, which has always been my sort of primary driver, not to go down a rabbit hole here, but I think that there are sort of two types of people who work in AI right now, people who are fundamentally interested in building models and people who are fundamentally interested in solving the sort of end user and enterprise problem. The applied guys, I think we're kind of a, <laughs> I think it's just, we're a different breed altogether. And, and that is right throughout our organization. Like I would say it extends to our scientists. Like you're either a fundamental researcher or you're fundamentally interested in applied research. And the same with our developers, you're, you know, and so for us, what really captivated us and how we really focus on the problem set of documentation across the board in large-scale financial institutions was we just very much wanted to see if we could if we could solve real problems for real people, if we could create more revenue and and solve some margin challenges and some risk challenges for these institutions, you know, with, with a degree of scale and you know, like some of the problems between that were different from my first business to my second business is like my first business, we were there for a moment in time for a transaction. This idea that people were going to adopt and live with our software forever was very, was very different. And so, so yeah, I suppose that's what, that's, that's where the idea of Arteria began. And this idea that documentation is everywhere, which is why we chose the, the Latin word for arteries because we really felt like documentation was was a little bit like the arteries of, of any large-scale enterprise. You've spoken about solving real problems and going after kind of real use cases as an application. I'd love to double-click on that and ask, you know, what are those specific use cases? Can you talk us through a couple of customer problems and how they get solved through the software you provide? Yeah, so some are really simple and really intuitive to understand. For example, every time a client onboards at a broker-dealer, there's a ton of paperwork. And that could be onboarding, it could be an uh, it could be a contract, it could be amendments, it could be a switch to their relationship, and every single time for a whole bunch of compliance reasons, we need to do a whole bunch of paperwork. And what is interesting about the problem and where it sort of creates value is number 1, it can take hundreds of days to onboard, depending on what we're looking at. But let's just talk about onboarding broadly. It can take forever. It's hugely manual. There are way more stakeholders than you can imagine. So, for example, where we're onboarding in a certain type of documentation, I don't know, but pick anything. You know, you're likely going to have your client coverage people who are going to start the request. You're going to have some sort of onboarding or transition team to help you quarterback that request. You're likely going to have some involvement of, of credit or pricing involved in order to figure out those details. And then you may have some, some risk teams involved there as well. You're then going to have approvals and potentially legal getting involved, depending on how complicated it is. And then when everything is said and done, 
the data is still landlocked in this unstructured format, and we need to get it into a data-first format to push it into downstream systems. And so, as mentioned, it could be proof of collateral. It could be any type of certificate or form received. I mean, honestly, to even try and narrow down when we receive so many hundreds of different kinds of documentation that we process, in that format, we'll receive something. We then apply, again, this data model to it. And then, again, from a processing perspective rather than a generation perspective, typically here we're not collaborating on on the item. We're, we're checking the data within that document, putting it through any exceptions processes that are needed. And then, again, we have available to us at this stage, now that we've unified the document and the, and the data model, we have, again, intelligent workflows available to us, we have intelligent approvals available to us, and again, core analytics and, and workflow available to us too. And so really, the way we think about Arteria technically is that there are plenty of amazing softwares. They, the softwares that spread, softwares that price, softwares that you know hold data. And where we don't have a lot of software in the bank is, is anything that deals with documentation, and you'll see at almost any stage in a given process where someone hits a document, they fall out of their technology system and have to go back to Word and email and all of the kind of more traditional systems. And so nothing is tracked. Nothing has a data model. No approvals are stored. We forget with the living memory of the organization why things were done or how things were done. And so Arteria gives you that workbench to do all of that work in. And whether or not we're reading or writing, once we unify the document in an intelligent format, we're then able to take any series of actions around that, which is really the, the secret to, to this foundational sort of documentation infrastructure. Gotcha. Maybe we can take a, a narrow example and walk through it to anchor it a little bit, because I think I understand that there's two tracks. There's one track where you're using a generative model to create forms in kind of the the traditional format, right? So if I'm a broker-dealer and I need a paper form to look in a particular way and it needs to have my address and proof of identity and maybe some legal attestation and a signature form, you mentioned kind of ingesting stuff from other systems and generating a document. Like, how does that work? Can you give an, is this in the context of like an institutional trade or? Well, so, so we use the onboarding example as one example. Like, so for example, onboarding documents are far more than an address or a field insertion. You know, these could be hundreds of pages, right? It could be a complicated syndicated loan document that requires multiple parties putting multiple, you know, inputs into a document. Or it could be, you know, something more structured like a prospectus or an offering circular. Like, I mean, it, it, there are really, there are so many examples, Lex, so, so sometimes they're hard to give because there are so many, but we are, the, the first case is we are writing a document. And the second case is we are receiving a document. And in that case, it could be, you know, I, I think I've, I've mentioned a few like proof of ownership of your boat or, or a notary, uh, proof of notarization on a document or, you know, client diligence for your loan. I mean, there, there are, again, so many examples. 
In both of those examples, though, the way we think of it as infrastructure is like, once you have that core object, that document that you want to do things with, created or, or received, you're then stacking a data model on top of that to be able to then add in intelligent workflows or analytics. Like you're, you're able to take a number of actions associated with that documentation and data at that stage. And then in terms of the machinery, either the natural language processing or the image recognition machinery that analyzes incoming artifacts or the generative AI machinery that builds clauses and puts together the, the artifacts downstream, how is that put together? Are you using open source vendors? Have you pre-trained your own models on sort of large bank data sets? How did that come together? You're exactly right that it's not just language or just image. We're using a whole series of models. We really think of it as almost like a tiramisu of models, Lex. So it's like stacks and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of models. Some are certainly open source. Some are trained at Arteria. Some, there's a whole stack of them. So for example, Arteria is very focused on, on how to use the most effective multimodal techniques to ensure that that we are not just looking at things one way. Uh, the best example of this is like, and it's a trite example because they're not hard to process. And so you shouldn't think of invoices being a core functionality of Arterias. It's just, it's, it's an example to, to demonstrate what multimodal means. Like, you know, when you look at an invoice that it is an invoice because you just know the format. And so your eyes are doing that work in addition to reading the word invoice at the top and maybe the number at the bottom right, which is the total, by combining the reading techniques of natural language with the vision techniques of being able to sort of look at a document and understand the context of that document, those are the types of models we're primarily focused on. And to your point about financial services data, specific specific always, almost always trumps the general no matter how large the model um, in AI. And so really, we, we tend to stay focused on things where we will have a competitive advantage because we'll take what's open source and then we'll fine tune it for the purposes that our customers have. And so our major advantage is that we are very specific in terms of what we focus on, documentation at banks, and so have tried to solve a whole series of challenges that are unique to financial services, like the documents tend to be long in a lot of cases. And as a result, certain models perform very poorly on them. And so we try and really get specific in terms of the techniques we're using. That said, most importantly, which I think we haven't quite gotten to, is Arteria is not just a series of models. We also have that workflow. We also have those client portals. We also have you know, writing capability and collaboration capability and audit trail capability and analytics capability and a no-code backend. And so we are taking kind of the best of software and packaging the best of models within that software for our purposes, if that makes sense. I think it makes sense that, you know, you'd have the intelligence layer and then the workflow and the automation layer. And certainly different counterparties will find different parts of that useful and valuable. I can't help but geek out about the underlying intelligence. You know, I guess which providers or which models have you found to be most useful in these cases in the more niche financial services cases? Like, 
Has the OpenAI GPT boom been really helpful or is it more like the specific machine learning breakthroughs of the years prior to that? Like, how did you build that tiramisu layer cake of models and which directions are sort of the most fruitful? I'm going to answer that in two ways. First of all, we need to realize that like the models you read about, the Geminis, the chat GPTs, the GPT-4 models, etc., are three of like tens of thousands of models available out there. And so while there's certainly the ones that are in the newspaper when we wake up and read the journal or whatever, or the Times, they're not like they are three of tens of thousands. So they're, you know, a new model is released, I mean, multiple times a week. I'm trying to think of the ones that were released recently. Obviously, Google just released Gemini. I think Al 2 was released, which was really promising a couple of weeks ago. Like to say, Lex, that on any given moment, <laughs> at any given time, like we, I mean, it, it would be impossible to name like a single model that would be revolutionary for our work at any given time, because we'll be reviewing and using the best of breed of any of the, I don't know, literally tens upon tens of thousands of models that are available right now for a different purpose. And so much of, of our craft, noting I'm not a scientist in particular, but so much of the craft of our science team is like figuring out what will work when and, and why and how and what they need to look at and what they can just throw away without reviewing. And, you know, like really and truly so much it's not like the world has settled on at all GPT being like GPT-4 being the standard. And so particularly not when it comes to niche use cases within financial services, like where you're really trying to solve a specific problem. It is unlikely that anything you've read about will work in that context. A lot more work needs to be done because the problems are much more specific. And so I would say that's kind of the first part of your question is like, which models? And the answer is a ton, but there are also way more than people think. There are because people tend to think they're the ones that are in the press, but honestly, there are just like thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of models, all for a whole different series of purposes. We stay remarkably up to date. Like, you know, our team is often referenced in research and our team is world-class. And actually, Humble Brag Gartner just named us one of their three cool Gen AI vendors for banking in the world. So that was awesome. And so there are any number of models that we'll use and, and focusing on one specific model, I think kind of misses the point that like the best people will be using the best techniques and, and models at any given time to fulfill the purpose. On the other hand, what I think is so unique is that we could not have anticipated in this space what happened with ChatGPT. I mean, putting even aside the most recent drama with Sam Allman and all of his, all of his governance challenges, but like it was like the world went bananas for stuff that we used every day. I suppose it was just over a year ago. And this entire year has been about the global obsession with AI. And it has just been a wondrous thing to watch. And it has been so inspiring. And while sometimes the hype can be a challenge for software companies, because people will be like, well, why aren't you ChatGPT? And it's like, no, no, we're not even in that layer. We don't work in that layer. We don't compete with them. It's fine. And it like sometimes it, it creates confusion. It is honestly, it's just like the world has totally woken up and I just find that incredible. So I'm curious as to the relationship with the large financial firms. You've recently raised a sizable round from financial firms. And we also know that, you know, many of the problems that machine learning within 
institutional finance tries to solve often has to be done on premises, kind of in a private environment. And, you know, that can be both an opportunity and a challenge. Given that you have the stack of using the best and the most recent stuff, how have you navigated the relationships with large financial enterprises in terms of data warehousing, in terms of, you know, making sure that things don't necessarily cross-pollinate, like since there's so much sensitivity, what's the key to success in those relationships? I think the key to success is being flexible. And I say that because, you know, you've sort of suggested that everyone needs to go on-premise. And I think that that's a, thankfully a notion that that thankfully we are now past because you just wouldn't be able to update you know, you just wouldn't be able to update the, the the core infrastructure of the bank fast enough for the bank to have availability of of some of the things that are out there if it all had to be on premise. And so, thankfully, I am finding that bank security teams are exceedingly reasonable because they know the business needs access to new tooling, and as a result, are able to you know really just seek safe and secure environments. Like we obviously have a zillion security certifications because we're you know, it's our obligation to keep to keep the data we receive safe. But I would just say, you know, the world has come a long way. And if you say that there is only one way to sort of get things into a financial institution, I think you'll be disappointed because banks come with so much existing work and infrastructure and tooling and software and something that they built in the 80s that they're still using and and its friend and its cousin, you know, like there's so much there that I would just say you really have to look at what is there and then and then solution to figure out how to effectively connect and and put your software in a place where it can play for value for, for that institution. So hopefully that's not too wishy-washy of an answer, but it really is just the, the secret has to be, you have to listen and you have to try and figure out how you fit. Because if you come and say fit to us, I, I mean, there's just the, the institutions we're dealing with are so big that it would be, it would be impossible to, to have a one size fits all way of deploying. Of course. And where do you find the purchasing decision is made? Is it the head of the business? Is it the technology arm? Is it the legal arm? Who's the relationship manager and is able to, you know, bring in a solution, an AI solution into the company? I suppose on your list, it's everybody with the exception of probably legal because most of the time we're not dealing with legal documentation anymore. It's, it can be any number of things. Uh, certainly they could be involved if it was legal documentation. But beyond that, they probably wouldn't be involved except from like a negotiation perspective. I think that these amazing organizations are really consensus driven. And so I think it's really just about consistently having a view of how that particular stakeholder will benefit from using the software or from, from understanding how it fits into their world. And so I would say it's a little bit of trying to ensure that everyone sees the value and that people can come to a collective understanding about, you know, why Arteria is the right choice. Got it. Okay, fantastic. If our listeners want to find out more about you or about the company, where should they go? They should go to our website, or they should find Arteria AI on LinkedIn, or they should feel free to reach out to anyone at Arteria to always learn a little bit more. Fantastic. Shelby, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, no, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. 
Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <music>